Hey everyone, welcome to the special Championship Saturday version of Dan and Joe Sports Show. As always, I'm Dan. Yeah, I'm Joe. Uh, Joe, really amazing rivalry weekend. We're going to start a show off by recapping it. Uh, Egg Bowl, Iron Bowl, uh, V-Game, all kinds of craziness. Uh, let's start off with the Egg Bowl, which I have referred to now as the Mississippi game. Mississippi inning EE. Of course, uh, you know, everyone's seen it now, whether you watch the game or not. Elijah Moore scores a touchdown with one second left for Ole Miss, uh, presumably to tie the game up. But, of course, he copies DK Metcalf and what was a very well-rehearsed uh, dog crawl, lift the leg up and take a pee. Hence, uh, we're calling it the Mississippi game. And everybody knows what happens right after that. Ole Miss gets backed up 15 yards, and the field goal kicker misses the extra point, and Ole Miss loses to stay in the egg bowl. Uh, the ramifications go further because Matt Luke gets fired and Joe Moorhead keeps his job. Yeah, the implications that that play, that celebration penalty had on both the Ole Miss program and Mississippi State program is something that will be talked about probably for years to come. Um, in the moment, you know, Ole Miss fans were obviously extremely embarrassed, frustrated, uh, thought we had tied the game and was either going to go for two and win or send it to overtime, and that did not happen. And you just think about the whirlwind of emotions on that last drive with Matt Corral and game quarterback. There were so many plays on that last drive in two minutes. I mean, I feel like they ran 15 to 20 plays in two minutes. It just went on and on forever. And let's not forget, you had the fourth and 24 miracle conversion when Corral threw the ball down the field to Braylon Sanders. And so just so much happened in that game. And um, Mississippi State got the win. But in the long term, all this, you know, may look back and think that that was embarrassing. That was very unfortunate. But it did allow their program to hit the reset button and look for a new head coach. Yeah, Joe, what was interesting about that ending right there is there's so much leading up to it that calls it to even get there, a.k.a. in the first half, you and I have talked about this time and time again, Plumlee's having a good game. He's moving the ball well against Mississippi State, and all of a sudden they yank him out to put Matt Corral in again. And I understand that Corral got the touchdown at the end of the game, but he really got kind of lucky. I mean, that 4th that and 24 play, he had lost 15 yards in three plays before it, and suddenly Sanders just gets past all of the Mississippi State secondary and what was really just terrible coverage. And they get a first down that way, and he misses a lot of wide-open passes and, and gets the touchdown eventually. But, I mean, the, the bottom line was I feel like they wouldn't have even needed to score that touchdown if they just left Plumley in to begin with. You also had the costly uh... – turnover on the interception uh, before that last yeah. drive, had they converted even a field goal on that drive, Ole Miss would have been going for the win with the Elijah Moore touchdown. And it was a bad throw on that interception, too. He threw it way behind the guy, and guy was open, too. He actually had a good chance to run on that one, too. It was just a poor decision. And Corral, I mean, he kind of reminds me of a less good Jameis Winston where it's either touchdowns or, or it's interceptions. He goes all over the place, and there's just no consistency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, coming into the season, Matt Corral was showcased as maybe, you know, the next up-and-coming quarterback in the SEC. He went to media days as a redshirt freshman to represent Ole Miss. There was a lot of excitement about his talent as a quarterback. 
He's a strong arm. Uh, he was projected to be a prolific passer, but just for whatever reason, it has not worked out at all with uh, the Rich Rodriguez offense. And that's why a long-term Plumlee should definitely be the guy. And we'll see um, when and where Matt Corral decides to transfer. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the bottom line is, Joe, is that the entire season, Matt Luke, and whether it was his decision or Rich Rod's decision, he's the head coach. And if it's Rich Rod's decision to keep switching these quarterbacks, then he's allowing it to happen. But Ole Miss probably lost three to four games because they didn't just stick with John Reese Fumlin. I mean, you look at the Cal game. Had they put him in at the beginning of that game, they'd have won. I mean, he could do whatever he wanted to against Cal. Yet again, really bad uh, timing in terms of the end of that game with clock management by Matt Luke. You go to Missouri, they play Corral for a lot of the game, does nothing, but every time we put Plumlee in, he scores a touchdown. Who would have thought? And then you go to this game where he has a very solid first half, and then in the second half, inexplicably, they put Corral and he does nothing until the last five minutes of the game. And so, yes, ultimately, Elijah Moore uh, simulating peeing, then missing the extra point, and then losing that game is probably what cost Matt Lucas' job in, I guess, a single fatal swoop, but there was a lot of, you know, sticks and hay leading up to, you know, that, that needle being found and ending his career right there. So, I mean, you had built up a lot for Matt Luke to be done, and that just kind of was icing on the cake. Yeah, I mean, they had, you know, chances uh, against Memphis as well in the first yeah. week of the season. Uh, Corral played that entire game. The offense, I think, only scored nine points because two points uh, of their 11 were a safety that they got against Memphis. Yeah. And so you look back at the season, they should have had seven or eight wins easily, and they just did not get it done with a quarterback shuffle and uh, a lot of questionable uh, decision-making. Yeah, and I wonder, too, if Matt Luke had maybe handled the Elijah Moore situation a little better afterwards, he may have kept his job, because instead of uh, saying something along the lines of, we'll internally discipline Elijah Moore, that kind of conduct is not tolerated at Ole Miss, he said... Well, he's just a kid, and I'm going to support the player on my team, and, you know, he made a mistake. And that's okay for you to think that. You just can't say that at that moment. You know, don't say you're going to kick him out of the university or something because you're not going to, or kick him off the team, but make a comment where you're saying that's not tolerated and we're going to give him some form of discipline. That's what he needed to say. And you basically saying that you don't care that he did that, that makes you look even worse, and that may have actually been even more so than what happened. His reaction to it then what led the Ole Miss power brokers to finally decide to ax him. Right, and I think that that had a lot to do with it. A lot of the higher-ups and also a lot of people that aren't as uh, interested in the football program. I was reading about just donors that uh, contribute to academics and things like that that are more casual football fans. They hear about this. They get really um, – embarrassed, and I think that that added to the pressure to make a, make a change. It did. Well, it's interesting, Joe, is I think most people going into that game thought Matt Luke was safe, and I don't even think that him losing necessarily would have cost him his job, but, I mean, we were talking about it afterwards. There's an old Miss way to lose a game, and then there's that, which was the most old Miss of all Miss ways to lose a game, and that's why they got rid of him, because they don't want people saying what I just said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, our friend from law school, Davis Gates, summed it up best. I don't know if you saw his Facebook post after the game. Nobody beats Ole Miss better than Ole Miss. <laughs> yeah, that pretty much sums it up right there. Um, you know, because most people going into the game thought that Moorhead was done if he lost the game. 
Well, meanwhile, Joe Moorhead, uh, due to the Mississippi gaffe, is uh, getting to keep his job for another year, and he'll probably be on the chopping block next season, but at least he gets one more year to be a Yankee himself. Yeah. But switching to another big rivalry game, the Iron Bowl this year uh, wasn't being played for conference title aspirations. You know, two out of the last five years it had been for the SEC West win. It wasn't necessarily being played for a chance to get into the four-team playoff, but it was being played for Alabama to still have a chance to get into the four-team playoff. And you and I have discussed it. We think that somehow had Alabama won that game, they would have still gotten into the four-team playoff. But it was all for naught. And what I'm calling the pick-six game, uh, you have two pick-sixes by Auburn, and you get another great moment of one second and Gus gets his third win over Nick Saban in seven years, and what a lot of ways might have been the most exciting Iron Bowl out of all. Yeah, it was an exhilarating, uh, a lot of points scored, especially um, going into halftime. You mentioned the one second, eerily similar. You know, you think about the 2013 game, and just for one second to cost Alabama one more time and three points to make a huge difference in the game. In turnovers, as you referenced, uh, with Mac Jones throwing two pick sixes, I mean, that's key. You cannot turn the ball over on the road in the SEC and expect to win a game, especially two times, and both times uh, end up with points for the other team. I mean, Alabama needed to play a clean game and be efficient and win the turnover battle if they were going to win on the road in a hostile environment against that defense. And you talked about, you know, Alabama's outside chances of making the playoffs prior to that game. I think that Alabama fans are going to look back now with immense regret because now that we've had the shakeup with Utah losing to Oregon in the Pac-12 championship game, Alabama would have been right there in the conversation and possibly could have gotten in over the Big 12 championship winner. Yeah, that's right, Joe. I think they would have had a great chance to get in. I personally feel like had they won it all with a backup quarterback against arguably the best defense in America, they would have gotten in over Utah or Oklahoma even with the win because people can talk about all this Alabama fatigue and how they're not going to put them in, but the bottom line is Alabama loses one game, they get in every time. And until I see it not happen, I'm going to believe that it's going to happen. We know it's like pro wrestling. <laughs> said about having that enemy that people can root against. And while people are tired of seeing them in these big games, a lot of people turn the television on because they're in these big games and they're rooting against them. Well, Joe, I mean, I can't argue with you. I saw something last week that it had the top five highest uh, rated uh, television football games for for this season so far. And it's a familiar name in two out of the top three of them. The number one most watched football game this year was Alabama and LSU. The number three most watched football game was the Iron Bowl. Therefore, Alabama had two of the top three most watched games, and one of which without two attack of a woe. So, you know, if that's the case, if you want people watching the 14 playoff, you want Alabama in it. So, I mean, those stats are, are not lost in the people that make these decisions in the college football playoff committee. So I still would say that if Alabama had one loss, they'd get in. Yeah, without a doubt. But talking about that game, Joe, uh, you know, Mac Jones did throw two picks, but outside of that, the guy played spectacular. I mean, he was almost an Iron Bowl hero for throwing for over 350 yards, and a lot of those touchdown throws that he made were not easy throws. I mean, I came away 
pretty impressed with Mac Jones overall. And to be honest, I don't know that Tua would have done that much more. No, he probably would not have. I mean, you look back to uh, some of his really good games. I mean, even against LSU this year, where he throws for over 400 yards, I believe, you know, he had a couple of turnovers. Um, and you look at a defense like Auburn, it's really difficult to play a turnover-free game, I will say. And Matt Jones, he's definitely uh, put himself in strong consideration to be the starter next year for Alabama. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, I'm assuming Tua, you know, still goes to the draft, whether they take Tua's brother or Matt Jones as the, the starting quarterback. Yeah, Joe, it's going to be interesting because I think right now Matt Jones has put him in a good position where either to be the starter next year or if they bring in that Bryce Young guy out of California that's the number one overall recruit in America, you'd be a highly sought-after uh, person on the transfer market right now if you were Matt Jones based on the way that really outside of throwing two pick sixes, you had a great deal of success against a highly talented Auburn defense. And... I mean, one thing I'll give it to him, man, he threw two pick sixes, but it did not phase him, and he kept playing good football and really responded well to a lot of adversity. I was impressed. If Matt Jones uh, enters the transfer portal, I guess don't be shocked if he's the next quarterback in Oklahoma. <laughs> that would be really funny right there. With Jalen Hurts for one year, Baker Mayfield, you have Kyler Murray, and then you get Matt Jones. They're just, they're just going right to Tuscaloosa to recruit all the quarterbacks. Yeah. Um, and you know it's interesting too. Like of those two pick sixes, I thought the first one was on Jerry Judy. I think he ran the wrong route, and that's why Mac Jones threw it where he did. Now the second one, the one that was returned for a hundred yards, it was just a shame that Mac Jones didn't throw a terrible pass. If he throws a terrible pass, it's just incomplete. The sad thing is he just threw a bad pass, and that's why it bounced off of Najee Harris's back and into the waiting arms of Zacoby McLean for a hundred yard pick six. Yeah. Yeah, I was reading a statistic, uh, maybe you can enlighten me more on this, but it's my understanding that Alabama's never beaten Auburn when they're ranked at Auburn. That's correct. And even more interesting, Joe, not only has Alabama never beaten Auburn when they're ranked in Auburn, Nick Saban has never beaten an Auburn team that had a chance to win nine games against him. So basically, Nick Saban cannot beat a good Auburn team. No, I mean, I think the, you know, story there that a lot of people, you know, don't pay that close attention to is how close Auburn really is to Alabama in this rivalry. You know, we look at Alabama and put them on that higher pedestal, but Auburn really, you know, through the years has been very competitive with them. And with Gus Malzahn now having three wins against Nick Saban in the decade, you know, that's as much as anybody in the country. Yeah, I mean, if Gus goes out and beats Nick Saban next year, he'll have a 4-4 four four record against him. Which, I don't know if anybody has an even record against Nick Saban, period, right now. I guess Gabo Sweeney might be the only one that technically has one. And he doesn't play him every year, so that's kind of a different different animal right there. But, you know, Gus said it uh, Gus said it after the game. He's like, our players believe that they can beat Alabama every time they play them. Most teams just hope they can beat Alabama. He said, we go into every game and we play Alabama thinking we're a better football team than them and that we can beat them. And, I mean, yeah. you can't argue with his results. He, he, his players definitely seem to believe it. Yeah, I mean, if this was like the NCAA basketball tournament, I would look at a team like Auburn, and, you know, if they were just in the tournament, they could make a run at it just because they're so battle-tested, you know, with that defense going up against uh, opposing conference opponents, I think they would fare pretty well. Well, and Joe, you know, I've been, I'm very uh, critical of Gus and his play calling in a lot of ways, but I thought he coached a magnificent game on Saturday. 
Uh, you know, he was able to get the officials alerted to the fact that there was one second left when, when Booby Whitlow went down at the end of the first half. He was able to get them to stop the clock and make it. And he was able to have his guys trained well enough on those what they call whistle kick drills to be able to make a 52-yard field goal with only one second to snap it. That is highly difficult. And then you look at the end of the game, his little ploy that he had by sending our punter Aaron Sipos out as a wide receiver, having Bo Nix under the center when they didn't want to kick it to Jalen Waddell. And he confused Alabama into having 12 men on the field, giving Auburn a first down and having a chance to kneel out. That was brilliant right there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can tell that that was a play he'd been staking for years probably into, you know, make a chess move that outsmarts Nick Saban. I mean, that's that's legendary. Yeah, so, I mean, he did a great job. And, you know, as bad as he did in coaching against Georgia, he did just that good against Alabama. And I really think that he put himself in position to have a lot of momentum moving forward. He's going to have a real big like leg up on recruiting because when he goes to a recruit's house right now, they can say, "Well, who are you looking at?" Well, I'm looking at you know Georgia and Alabama, and you know he can say he's like, "Well, listen, you know Alabama is a great program, but I beat them. So if you go there, there's a good chance you'll lose to me, and I can have it. You can be on a team that beats Alabama if you're with me." And he can go into a recruit's house and say that he is at, on an equal level in a lot of ways with Alabama's program because truth is, he is. Right, right. I mean, it's amazing right now, you know, we say this every year, how difficult the SEC West is. And it's only getting more difficult, you know, with more coaches of such high caliber coming to the conference. You already had Jimbo Fisher a couple of years ago, Gus Malzahn, Nick Saban, established head coaches. And, you know, you wonder at some point, I don't think that Alabama's going to go away. I still expect them next year to be right there, you know, in the preseason top five with another great recruiting class. But you do wonder at some point if Nick Saban could get kind of bored and frustrated with the fact that he could be right there, have another 10-2 and two season, but just due to the difficulty of the competition he has to face uh, week in, week out, that could prevent them from making the playoff again. Yeah, good. And, you know, I think this was uh, overall, if I look at all 12 games, I thought that was a very good season for Auburn. I mean, we talked about at the beginning of the year, like, what a difficult schedule they had. You had to take on Oregon to begin the season, Florida on the road, Georgia at home, Bama at home, and then, of course, you had to take on LSU on the road, all five top 10 teams. And for them to win two of those games with a true freshman quarterback, Ultimately, it's a good season. If they can win 10 games in their bowl game, I would say that's probably the best 10-win season in the history of Auburn football. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I, I would say, I, you know, I think going into the season, I, I think I told you, Joe, that what I wanted from Gus was 10 wins, and two of which against the top five teams that he plays, and I would be happy with him and be good with him being my coach moving forward in the trajectory of the program, and now he has a chance to do that in his bowl game. Yeah. So, switching to a, a group of fans who, like Auburn, is probably viewed as the lesser program in a, in a rivalry and probably a little bit of uh, little brother syndrome, if you will. Michigan played Ohio State again in the game. And uh, unlike Auburn and Alabama, which has been a very balanced rivalry lately, and although one program's been you know, consistently in the national championship program, the other one's there a pretty decent amount of time and has beat them a substantial amount of time. Michigan just, it's in their head now, Joe. You could see that game. In the first two quarters, they played Ohio State great. 
It was tight. You could tell that the talent differential was not that much. And then all of a sudden, Shea Patterson drops the ball. He just drops the ball on a snap, and it just goes away just like that. And then Michigan lost all confidence in themselves, and you could tell that they had no belief they could beat Ohio State. They hoped they could beat Ohio State. They did not believe they could beat Ohio State. And Ohio State ran away with them again. And yet again, Jim Harbaugh can't beat Ohio State. And it just seems like maybe he's never going to do it. No, it definitely appears that way, Dan. And it's not just the fact that they're repeatedly losing to Ohio State. The last couple of years, they're being absolutely demolished by Ohio State, really having no chance. Ohio State's doing whatever they want to offensively, no matter who the quarterback is, no matter who the wide receivers are, no matter who the coach is. And I would love to do a case study if I had some more time to do some research on some of these rivalry games in college football, like Ohio State, Michigan. It fascinates me when you can see one particular rival that has such a stranglehold on the series as of late. I was watching the other day, you look at Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, with Oklahoma setting dominance in that rivalry. Uh, Washington, Washington State, Oregon, Oregon State, just amazes me the level of consistency that some programs can have in rivalry games. And then on the flip side, you see a rivalry like Alabama, Auburn, Ole Miss, and Mississippi State, where it seems like one year a team has momentum, the next year it flips in a heartbeat. It's really fascinating. And it does not look like Ohio State is going to lose momentum in this rivalry anytime soon. Michigan had a senior quarterback, they had great defense, and they still were crushed by Ohio State. Uh, I mean, Ohio State is playing great football, and uh, assuming they can take care of business against Wisconsin tonight, they're in a great position to make a run of the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, Michigan had, what, a seventh-year coach and Jim Harbaugh, senior quarterback Shea Patterson, some really talented receivers, and, uh, you know, Donovan Peoples-Jones and, and, you know, just a lot of talent out there. Nico Collins, really high-level receivers, and a great defense, and they really looked like they matched up pretty well talent-wise with them. And just all of a sudden, you could see the fear in them on that Shea Patterson play, and mentally they did not have it, and they did not have a chance to beat Michigan and to beat Ohio State. And that's what happens to some of these rivalries, is it just becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And right now, sadly, that's where Michigan's at. I don't know what it's going to take to get them out of that, but I don't see it changing anytime soon. Well, one underrated thing I looked at coming into the season this year was the loss of Karen Higdon, their uh, senior running back from last year. They had some good guys that were serviceable at running back this year, but not just that necessarily that featured back that can make a difference. And when you compare and contrast that to Ohio State with one of the best running backs in the country and J.K. Dobbins, I mean, that, that really hurts. And you saw the kind of game that Dobbins had on um, last Saturday. At the end of the day, I think that, you know, Hindsight being 2020, Shane Patterson, you know, he never really should have made the decision to go to Michigan. I don't think that was ever really a good fit. I think his offensive skills would have been much better suited um, with a spread offense. I've always thought, you know, put him on a team in the Big 12 like Oklahoma State. That would have been great. He would have just put up outstanding numbers. That would have been so much fun to watch in the Bedlam rivalry. You know, it just wasn't a great marriage in Michigan. Uh, you know, they had a couple of good seasons where they were right there, you know, one, eight, nine, ten games, but just were never able to capitalize on the big stage. Joe, you know where I would have loved to have seen Shea Patterson at? I think he would have been a great USC quarterback. 
I mean, with all of this talent that they have right now at wide receiver at USC, I mean, he would have killed it with those guys. And I think, you know, they would have been able to compete for Pac-12 titles. I'm not saying they would have won one, but with Shea Patterson being able to sling it to all that high-level talent that they have in the wide receiver position, plus having really good running backs, too, I think they would have done a great job at uh, USC. Yeah, that would be great. But switching to Championship Saturday, speaking of Pac-12, you know, I said early in the season, this is not me being an Auburn homer, I thought Oregon was a fantastic football team when I saw them in person. Uh, they didn't battle. They weren't scared of Auburn's big defensive line, and they actually had a really solid offensive game plan early on. It took advantage of Auburn's strengths and a little bit of slowness on defense. And their defense like, you know, stood up tall to our pretty good offensive line, and they played real football with us. I mean, we did not bully them from the SEC. And I came away from that game with Oregon thinking that they were just as good of a football team as Auburn. And I, I saw in my mind them winning the Pac-12 and maybe having a chance to get back in the playoffs. And for most of the season, that was there. Uh, Oregon was fulfilling everything that I thought about them. And then they had this game against Arizona State that I can't explain. I don't know what happened in that game. But they played terrible football. Herbert turned it over everywhere. And suddenly everyone came in this game last night with Utah basically just needing to win in order to maybe get in the, in the Final Four. Now, there's, you know, I think they needed Oklahoma to lose. I still think they were going to find a way to try and put Oklahoma in if they won. But the bottom line is Utah, if they won, there was a good chance they could have gotten into the playoffs. They got obliterated by Oregon last night. And I saw it coming, Joe, because I knew that Oregon was the best team in the Pac-12. And I didn't really understand how, you know, what happened to them last week against Arizona State did happen. But I kind of thought they would beat Utah. And sadly for Utah, they had their chance, but they went into a buzzsaw last night. And the Ducks looked just as good as they did for three and a half quarters against Auburn last night. And I was impressed with the way that Oregon was able to win that game, relying more on a physical approach. Uh, their running back, Merdell, had a fantastic game. Uh, Herbert, a quarterback like him, you expect in a big game if his team dominates like that, he has to throw over 300-plus yards. I'm not even sure he hit the 200 plateau. And you look at Utah's defense all season, they had been so physical. They had been that team that was able you know, to stop the run. And really, their only hiccup had been to USC, surprisingly. But USC was throwing the ball around really well with their wide receivers and going to have a good chance to play at the next level. So to see Utah surrender so many rushing yards after they had three or four games this year where they just shut people out offensively, that really surprised me. And it's a very disappointing ending for the Pac-12. They thought coming into the season that one of these two teams had a great chance to represent them in the college football playoff. But once again, they're settling for the consolation prize of seeing Oregon go to the Rose Bowl. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, pill, a bitter pill for the Pac-12 to swallow because both of those teams at times during the season look playoff ready. And I really came away, once again, very impressed with Andy Avalos' defense at Oregon. They have a lot of talent there, and they hit you really hard, and they don't give up a lot of easy plays. And last night, I mean – you could see Utah just getting destroyed on out passes and getting hit really hard and not getting easy yards. And I would agree with you on Verdell. I mean, he ran the ball pretty well against Auburn. And last night, a Utah defense that I think had given up over 15 points in eight games gave up 37 points. So really impressive win by Oregon. 
But sadly, they just had that one gap against Arizona State, which is ultimately what's going to cost them. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, moving forward into some of these other games, before we preview the rest of the championship Saturday, which we're going to do in our next 30-minute segment, let's look really quickly at our Dan and Joe championship weekend lock lots of the week. So we got the, the SEC championship game coming up later this afternoon at 3. My big pick, you still got time to go to Biloxi or Vegas or Tunica and put it in there. Uh, everyone's obsessed with LSU's offense, and they should be. LSU's got a great offense. But Georgia's defense is just as good as LSU's offense is. And I've watched Georgia this season. They don't have any weaknesses on their defense. They don't have any star powers. There's not a lot of, like, fighting or guys with big heads. They just get the job done. You have an over-under right now of 56 points. LSU's defense has been playing great, too. I mean, they went out and destroyed A&M 51-7, and I believe the LSU defense heard the playoff committee saying, we don't think you're a complete team, and now their defense is stepping up. 56, Joe, way too high. I think you might see a game that's something like, you know, 24-23 to LSU wins. So I think the under is the way to go in LSU-Georgia. Okay, my pick is going to be the UAB Florida Atlantic game. I'm going uh, UAB on the money line. Um, Florida Atlantic right now, I think, is going to deal with a lot of distractions with uh, the pending move by Lane Kiffin to Ole Miss, and I think that will allow UAB to pull off the upset. All right, thank you. I like that pick, Joe. Appreciate everybody listening to our show. Find us on Spotify, the Dan and Joe Sports Show Spotify. You can just search us on there. Like us on Facebook, and then tune into our fan page, which is also the Dan and Joe Sports Show. And once again, look us up at Spotify. And as always, I'm Dan. Yeah, I'm sure.